I'm Adam Coleman, inviting you to the fifth season of The Cosmic Library from LitHub. This season, we go on our tiniest reading adventure yet, into short stories in the U.S. But this too turns out to be almost all-encompassing. I think short stories are essentially brief encounters with felt life. That's Oxford literary scholar Andrew Kahn, who gives us a deep history of the short story. And we hear from The New Yorker's Deborah Treisman, who explains her work as an editor of short fiction. You know, if you are melding with another person, you don't turn that person into you, but you get to know the ins and outs of that person. So, and it's, it's sort of like that. I always feel involved with the stories. We bounce around between the history and current life of short stories with the novelist Justin Taylor. The nice thing about it going out of fashion is that it really frees you up to relate to it in a different way. This being the Cosmic Library, we make sure to go way beyond U.S. short stories, too. Here's the Washington Post critic, Becca Rothfeld. A lot of Kafka short stories, I think, gesture at or describe um, sort of nightmarish geographies or architectures. And the actor Max Gordon Moore reminds us just how wild short stories can be. With a reading in its entirety of Wakefield, the intensely strange, classic Nathaniel Hawthorne story. He had contrived, or rather he had happened, to dissever himself from the world, to vanish. Get ready for all that and more in a season about short stories, small windows into vast universes. It's season five of The Cosmic Library, available soon wherever you go for podcasts. Hi, welcome to the Maris Review. I am so happy to be joined today by Jessica Winter, um, a friend who I've seen at many book events and I love reading her fiction. Uh, she is an editor at The New Yorker and the author of the novel Breaking Case of Emergency. Her writing has appeared in The New York Times, Slate, Book Forum, and other publications. And her new novel is called The Fourth Child. Welcome. Thank you, Maris. I'm so happy to be here. Jessica, I feel like your book shattered me in many ways, um, partly because oh. it's a depiction of being a teenager in the 90s, which... Um, all of a sudden I have like real nostalgia for that. Um, but also it's very much a novel about control mm. and who gets to have it and how you define it. Tell me about Jane, the main character and how she tries at first to, to take control of her body, her life, her future. Yeah, of course. So um, Jane is is a housewife in Western New York State, which is which is where I grew up, and she became a mother very young and not under ideal circumstances. She's devoutly Catholic and and kind of devoutly intellectual too. She's bookish. Um, she's sort of a Jesuit without knowing what a Jesuit is. <laughs> <laughs> and. And as her children get older and more independent, um, she's overtaken by a kind of restlessness that leads her to make a bunch of well-meaning but rash decisions. You know, she joins up with a local pro-life organization and almost as a kind of pledge of her pro-life credentials, she, um, she adopts a troubled child from overseas. And these decisions, which again, she believes are honorable and in many ways they are, mm -hmm. um, destabilize her family. And they have a particular effect on her oldest daughter, Lauren, who 
She's 14, she turns 15 in the book. And Lauren is reaching a kind of inflection point herself. She's discovering her creativity. She's discovering her sexuality. She's really figuring out who she is as a person. Of course, she's so young, her identity is still very much bound up with her mother, even as her mother is pulling away into this new identity of her own. And that is the central tension or rift um, of the book. And I think you're absolutely right that, that the book is, is very much bound up in, in control and who gets to have control. Um, you know, uh, Jane, of all the characters in the book, ostensibly has the most real control. You know, she's a mother, she's a parent, the, you know, the stakes can't be higher. Um, that's a huge responsibility. And um, her children are going to be seeing Jane wielding a lot of control over her own circumstances, over their circumstances, and they're going to be thinking about that a lot, and they're going to be resenting it. Um, but Jane is also struggling to wrest control over her life. That's precisely why she's making all of these um, rash decisions. Um, and then Lauren, her teenager, her oldest daughter, um, she's, she's, a, she's manipulative in a kind of unsophisticated adolescent way. You know, she was like manipulative in all the ways that girls are when they're figuring out who they, who they are. And I think she conceives of herself as having a lot of agency yes. um, as she's making these discoveries about herself. She's figuring out who she is and where her talents lie and what kind of people she wants to be around. Um, I think in her own head, she's calling the shots. She's determining her life. Um, but of course, no teenager can have that degree of control, no matter what her circumstances are. Absolutely. And so in Jane's teenagedom, we have the religious aspect. You use this line that she repeats to herself quite a lot, which is that her, your mind is a cell as a way to like, at least have your brain take control of um, the circumstances around you there. Yeah, it's build a cell inside your mind from which you can never flee. Mm -hmm. Yes, and it starts as a religious idea, but then she can also apply it to eating disorder, anything that um, requires her discipline. Yeah, and I think all of that is bound up in um, her Catholicism. I, I, I think mm -hmm. her religious devotion is is real. I, I think I think a, a couple of friends who who read the book, I think read maybe early drafts. Hopefully, I improved on this. You know, the mm -hmm. the religious devotion as a kind of front for her disordered eating. But I I, I think that the two just just uh, well, feed each other. I don't want to say that. Uh, they, 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 it's a cycle, right? It's, it's, it's a cycle, um, and they press the yeah. same buttons, perhaps. Like I, again, it's it's about control. It's about wanting some agency. Yeah, I mean, I think a girl is really lucky if she escapes adolescence or young adulthood without getting hit too hard by the food stuff. I, I, I really think it, it, like, it hits every girl in some way or other. Um, and Jane's devotion compounds those dangers because so much of Catholicism is about self-denial and guilt and casting everyday pleasures as sinful or as temptations. You know, in the Catholic church, you, you glorify God by contemplating his suffering. You know, Jane thinks a lot about this. You wear a cross around your neck. And when you sit in church on Sundays, you're surrounded by the stations of the cross. There's this bizarre, almost 
pornography of suffering in the Catholic church that as a child, I found gruesomely fascinating. And it probably kind of, you know, wired my brain in certain ways. And now I just find it kind of gross. Um, But that that exaltation of suffering um, for a girl like Jane, who's so interested in pleasing God, um, and who is also going to get a lot of positive social reinforcement to be thin and to deny herself food, you know, those two things, of course, are going to collide and um, lead her to those kinds of decisions. Yeah. And then you know, she she is always, she has this vaulted opinion of pain, actually just regular physical pain and the moral implications of it. And so when she adopts this orphan from Romania, you see her dealing with a literal embodiment almost of all of the things that she can't control in one little person who causes her physical pain quite often. (laughs) Tell me about the character of Mirella. So Mirella is um, a child whose very early life was spent in a state-run institution and orphanage in Romania. In Romania uh, for decades, um, contraception and abortion um, were completely illegal. Um, And as a result, um, many women died and many children, hundreds of thousands of children um, were abandoned in these horrifying institutions um, where um, their basic needs, including their emotional needs, just weren't attended to, which causes, um, in some cases, permanent damage. Um, and in the early 90s, um, there, there were a lot of North, thousands of North American families um, who um, began adopting these children um, when the orphanages were exposed. Obviously, for a pro-life activist such as Jane, um, this, is, this is an interesting conundrum because... Mm-hmm. Um, these children need homes and they are um, in need of, of adoption and care. And, um, you know, adoption is the alternative that um, someone like Jane would always um, implore someone who was thinking of an abortion. On the other hand, um, the suffering of these children is a direct result of um, the state legislating women's bodies. These children would not be suffering if women had access to contraception and abortion, which the Catholic church and the pro-life movement would not want them to have. Um, So with all of that in mind, I was sort of terrified of um, creating a character who was just symbolic of issues or who was simply a projection or a reflection of someone else's religiosity or someone else's pain, although she is those things. And because she's so young, she can't really speak for herself, you know, as, as eloquently or at all. Right. She doesn't, she doesn't even speak doesn't. the language of, of her family um, as someone like Jane or Lauren. So that, that was the scariest part of the book for me was just honoring the experience of, of someone like Morella, um, who's so young and so vulnerable, but who was also cast as this, you know, scary character who's destroying things and hurting people and and acting out this rage, this completely justifiable rage she has about how her life has gone so far. Um, you know, she's she's a tiny child who's been traumatized and who 
doesn't know her own family. These people who are, you know, she's being told are, are her family. So of course she, she lashes out and she tries to protect a little corner of the world that belongs only to her. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, talk about control. It, it's, again, she made me think about the people who now sign up to hold babies in hospitals because it's become so apparent that that is so important, just that touch and, and her to be lacking that. You also have a lot of parenting theory in the book and tell me a little bit about like attachment theory and um, how you learned about it and how it relates to Morella. Sure. Um, when I uh, had my, my first baby um, in early 2015, I found myself reading a lot about attachment theory, um, which, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's wonderful to read about when you have a tiny little baby, sure. because the, the big message of it is just make a lot of eye contact with them, touch them a lot, hold them a lot, you know, carry them around. Like it's, it's pretty, like if you have a maternity leave, which I realized that many women do not, sure. it's, it's pretty easy to like, I'm gonna attach to my baby now. Like it, it feels pretty um, natural. Um, for someone like Morella, they, uh, they didn't get eye contact, they didn't get um, touch and, and, and um, holding and swaddling and, and kisses. And those things are completely fundamental, we understand this now, to a child's emotional and cognitive development. Like, like you're literally teaching a child how to love by loving a child. And um, if a child doesn't make those neural connections, if the child does not learn that language uh, very, very early, um, those neural connections just don't get made. Like we, we understand this now. I remember doing the research for the book, reading this absolutely heartbreaking account of a, of a Russian orphanage where the nurses were actually discouraged from holding and attaching to the babies because they thought it would disrupt the babies from being able to attach to future adoptive parents when it's exactly the opposite. It's it's just exactly the opposite. If they don't learn it, then it's so much harder to learn it later. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was just a strange, um, it was just this strange dissonance because if you read enough about attachment theory, which is just, it's just just a celebration of, of loving and holding and being with your little baby, you almost inevitably end up reading about what happens when attachment is disrupted, or when attachment is, is conflicted, or when it doesn't happen at all. And, you know, there's, there's just nothing more heartbreaking. Yeah. And, and then you, you, or the child is in the is put in this position where later in life they have to learn how to love and be loved and how do you learn such a thing or teach such a thing yeah i mean that's that's jane's great challenge with morella and what compounds the challenge for her is that she doesn't know how to do that um who does i, I think yeah <laughs> Um, yeah, I think, I think a message that Jane is getting, you know, I found all the, all this, um, you know, Christian adoption literature from the eighties and nineties when I was researching 
the book and you know the, the message the, the, the messages that it sent was basically love conquers all right um that all a child needs is you know love and a loving home and, and food and warmth and shelter and it'll all be okay and with these children given what they had been through given the the, the physiological you know the the neurological scars of what they've been through it's just not true um, and it sets up parents for a lot of pain because they are going to fail. They are guaranteed to fail by receiving these messages. Um, and, you know, a lot of those stories are very happy ones, um, but a lot of them, you know, they, they, they get to, to a happy ending, um, but a lot of them don't. And I, it's funny, um, early in the book, you have Jane being a fan of Barbara Walters. And I feel like I remember a 2020 show on Romanian orphanages and just like in, in 1990 or so, and just not being able to process the horror of those institutions. Yeah, you know, I, I don't remember where I was when I saw that. I, I, I remember I used to babysit um, on 2020 nights, which I think were Fridays. Yeah. I think mm -hmm. fr it was Friday at 10 o'clock Eastern mm -hmm. Standard Time. Mm -hmm. And that aired in October of 1990. So I, I would have been babysitting at the Malagesis. Shout out to the Malagesis <laughs> if you're listening. Hi, to this. And I, you know, I can see their living room. I can see the couch that I, I can feel the couch that I used to sit on. You know, their wall, their, they had this really fluffy white wall-to-wall -wall carpeting. It was, it was so nice to sink your toes into. And I think I saw it there, I think, but it might be just a just-so story that I tell myself. Mm -hmm. um, but I really think that whenever I saw that, whether it was at the Malagesis or, or somewhere else, I honestly think that that was the moment where I started not to believe in God anymore. I really, I really think that was it. And I, I don't know if I'm revising history. Memory is very faulty, but I really, I have this very strong association of seeing that and hearing those children's voices and it just hitting me really hard that there's no God. Wow. Um, and so I guess maybe it was, it was inevitable that I would write about it someday. And I think it had that effect, maybe not that, you know, identical, like theological effect on people, but I, I you know, I, I think it had a grave effect on a lot of people. And of course, part of what we've been talking about and, and, and what you drive home so well in the book is that we are on the receiving end of so many messages. Again, this is very much from my point of view, but I feel like in the 90s, there weren't that many media studies. Like we weren't told to question what we were hearing, whether that's a religious thing or whether that's a thing about Courtney Love being a destructive force in Kurt Cobain's life. <laughs> Just say. <laughs> Courtney Love does have a cameo in this book. I don't, yes. think, I don't think she's named, but. She yeah. is not named. But, but the, the things that are said about her are very much the narrative that was pushed back then, which like one of those you're wrong about moments when 
people saw her as, as messy and maybe she weighed more than he did and um, was taking away from his genius. Mm-hmm. Yes, Jessica, I blame you for the for the new grunge phase I'm in, age <laughs> <of> 42. <laughs> yeah, I'm so somebody, sorry. I mean, no, I love it. Um, but one of the ways you frame this is the story is set in Buffalo and looming in the background is the Buffalo Bills and mm-hmm. O.J. Simpson's rise. And, and how much of a force he was in the lives of everyone um, in the community. And, and yeah. of course that has to feel, I, I felt the dread building even there. Yeah, I mean, to be from Buffalo is, is to feel a certain amount of dread. They call it, I never actually heard this growing up, but I, I, I encountered it as an adult, the, the McKinley curse. Uh, President McKinley was assassinated in Buffalo and that Buffalo has been cursed ever since. Um, You know, the the Super Bowl losses, the the fact that, you know, our our greatest, holiest sports superstar ended up being a double murderer, the weather, um, the the strange um, starring role it's taken in anti-abortion violence and and on and on and on and on yeah oj does loom a little bit over the book i mean i i was very careful not to sort of slot in pop cultural moments or historical moments just because they happened you know i i tried to be super selective about okay, how is this song or this video or this news item from 1974 or 1991 or whatever, Mm -hmm. how is that actually reflecting, you know, a character's thought processes? In a a couple of instances, it actually moves the plot along a little bit, which is totally the ideal. That's what you want to happen. You you want somebody to watch something on MTV and it actually nudges the plot along. Um, With OJ... I just realized how completely central he and the Bills would have been to any family in the seventies. Right. Um, he he was the he was the great hope. He was the great future of of Buffalo. And and you know if, whatever we w- with everything that we know about him now, you, you look at old footage of him, and he he, he was splendid. You know, he was spectacular. Yeah. He was just yeah. a spectacular athlete. Um, and he he was a, a bright spot in a in a really bleak, wintry, <laughs> economically uh, um, downtrodden time for Buffalo, and, and it all went so so terribly wrong. Um, but I just wanted to to feel a sense of community in the book. Like I, I think the book a lot is about isolation and feeling lonely and feeling like you can't tell the, the people closest to you what, what's really on your mind or what's going on. You know, there's a lot of loneliness and separateness in the book, but I, I wanted to feel a sense of community too. I wanted to feel a certain solidarity among the teenagers, even though they can be awful to each other. I, as, as much as I disagree uh, vehemently with the pro-life group 
uh, in the book, I, I wanted some sense of, of why those people found communion and community with each other. And I wanted a sense of just, you know, guys in Buffalo watching football and yeah. talking about football with each other. Cause they're like, not very good about, you know, talking about other stuff, but they can kind of create this, this social glue. They can kind of come together over um, how OJ Simpson is definitely, definitely going to bring the bills to the Super Bowl in 1970, whatever. Um, so it, it was about how, that as much as, as it was about sure. kind of capturing the essential dread of Buffalo. <laughs> and, and I like that, that obsession, the dudes in front of the TV can be, is mirrored by, um, you know, drama club kids in the early nineties listening to Kurt Cobain and, and it, what a, it was an amazing time to be obsessed with an album because there was no streaming and there was no internet. So you could just really get lost. You get one, one CD or one tape and put it on your Walkman and that's it. That's it, yeah, yeah. And making mixtapes and mm -hmm. you know falling asleep to a record and then the hidden track comes on and wakes you wakes up. Mm -hmm. um, I think there wasn't Nevermind the first CD with a hidden track. They did the hidden track and then everybody else started doing it. Maybe they were like the first big record that did it or something. Um, yeah, I mean, not, the, the book largely takes place during the 1991 to 92 school year. Um, you know, we, we've talked a lot about OJ, but, but it, it, most of the book actually comes a little, a little later than that. Um, and, you know, I hesitate to say what a great year for music because I was 14 right. and like, Anything of course, like, yeah, it's just like, regardless of the merits of the music at that age, it's just, you're completely primed to soak up what you're listening to and, and it's going to make a huge impact on you. And it might, it might even like subtly shape your identity a little bit. I mean, I guess that's part of what the, what the book is about. I will say it is kind of cool <laughs> that, you know, that, that there, there was, I, I think a few obsession worthy records that came out at that time. And I was, you know, glad to be there for them. But I, I feel like if I say anything more, I just sound like a nostalgic old lady <laughs> pining, pining for <laughs> oh, the good Let, let me handle that part. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> the other part of that too is, yeah, I was a drama club kid. Um, and when you have like a, a, a masterpiece of cheesiness that is Greece, say. Ugh, worst. I, re I remember simultaneously being very, very into show tunes, especially the, the I mean, Greece really summed it up because we, we had that 50s nostalgia in the 90s. That's right. Um, and, and that felt like a great, um, fissure in, in my identity, <laughs> choosing one or the other, understanding how both can live in the same place. And it seems because like you were, you were belting out show tunes from the stage, but then on the way correct. home, you were like listening to Alice in Chains. Yeah, correct. Correct. Yeah. Um, and, and so I loved Lauren's, um, confusion yeah I was not a drama club kid 
um, I was in the chorus of one musical one year, like as a lark, but I, I was never actually in that crowd, but I envied them. I really envied the kind of um, the freedom and the confidence that they had to just get up on stage and, and belt it out. And, and, it, and it was an early lesson for me in confidence because, you know, there were kids in the drama club who would get lead roles who, you know, had amazing singing voices and amazing, but there, there were some kids who just wanted it, you know, they, yeah. they just wanted it and they wanted to get up there and they got what they wanted. And, and that, that was, um, that was fun and, and edifying to watch. And I, I wanted to capture a little bit of that yeah. in, the, in the book. Um, yeah, I mean, Lauren, I don't know that Lauren is going to be like the most committed drama club kid. I think she's right. sort of trying on different outfits and seeing right. how they fit. And she tries this one on and because of the, you know, very particular constellation of people that she encounters in trying on that outfit, it, it sort of takes over her life, maybe in a way that she didn't want or didn't plan but you know your choices when you're a high school freshman in a boring suburb are kind of limited so it's yeah. like okay well I could join the yearbook join track and field right. I could be in Greece you know <laughs> so the options <laughs> um but I I do feel like drama club and school productions also um celebrate precocity in a way that not every after-school activity does that part of the what you're trying on when you're doing theater is an adult identity even when you're 15 and and, and that seemed to be something that Lauren felt uncomfortable with and yet kind of liked fair yeah it's strange it's it's teenagers you know putting on adult Mm -hmm. drag you know doing you know very having very adult conversations doing very adult things um on the stage and then it, it must be very confusing to get off the stage and resume um your role as someone who doesn't say such adult things and, mm -hmm. and you know doesn't make such adult decisions um you're also spending a ton of you know semi-constructed time together backstage you know you're waiting to go on or you're waiting for somebody else to do their part of the rehearsal and you know you can get into a little bit of trouble in those in those um situations i think part of what um what appealed to me and, and what also kind of frightened me away not frightened me away but like like i just never thought i was cool enough for the drama kids because they did seem a little bit more adult you know they they did they, they had costumes and makeup and they were sophisticated and they smoked cloves and they, you know, they just seemed, <laughs> they just seemed a little bit, and, and, and they did these wild things where they would get up on stage in front of hundreds of people and do crazy things. And, and that was, um, you know, I wasn't even envious of that because I, I just couldn't really imagine that for right. myself. So they, they did seem kind of, you know, they, they weren't high school students, but they weren't older than high school students. They were just something over here and like a, like a different age category than, you know, people who weren't in drama club. And, and I think maybe that was part of the, of the, of the tension or the kind of, you know, the, the phrase liminal space comes up a lot in the yes. book. Cause that's like, that, that's like a concept that they really hammer into your head in, in high school mm -hmm. um, to kind of 
some degree. Um, but it was, it was useful because all these kids are thinking about liminal space all the time because that's how, you know, teachers are framing what they're reading. And, and that's a really, like drama club is a really good example of just this threshold of like yeah. neither this nor that. And um, it's a dangerous place too, as Lauren um, discovers, but we, you know, we, won't, we won't go too far into that. Um, I actually realized late in the writing of The Fourth Child, we were talking about pop cultural moments and like when to put them in and when not to earlier. I realized that Cape Fear came out in the fall of 1991, which is exactly when most of this book takes place. And that I had seen it in the theater, yes. which is insane. The, the Martin Scorsese film. Yep. Yep. But it's insane. Like my kids aren't allowed to see that movie until they're like 35. That is a <laughs> crazy movie. But, you know, it's, it's a movie about a 15 year old girl who, um, who is pulling away from her parents or maybe her parents are pulling away from her and she's discovering her sexuality and she encounters a man who is to her, this kind of alluring and slightly creepy drama teacher. Mm. Um, of course he's not, if you've seen Cape Fear, he yes. is the embodiment itself of monstrous evil, but to her, right. he's a drama teacher and she has this long, interesting and eventually quite disturbing conversation with him. And when this occurred to me, I was at work actually, at like, I, I was like at my desk, like eating a fig bar or something. And I was like, holy cow, Cape Fear. I got to get a bunch of people in my book together and I'm going to send them to Cape Fear. This is crazy. But I, I, I ended up ditching it because it was just too on the nose. It was sure. just too retrofitted. It was too overdetermined. And so it, that was a good example of, of, you know, having to be careful and questioning about like, is this here because it's a gear in the works or is it just like this cute little blip on the timeline? And certainly you could go back and find numerous pieces of art and culture to fit your <laughs> storyline if that's what you are looking for. Like it, that, that seemed like a really um, fecund time uh, for, for art. Like, I mean, let's think uh, American Beauty. American oh. Beauty was 99. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. well then forget it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Jessica, this has been so delightful. Um, before we go, I was hoping you could recommend a couple of books for our listeners. I would love that. Um, I'm going to go with the obvious, which is I'm going to recommend The Fifth Child by Doris Lessing. Um, my book, The Fourth Child, takes its epigraph from The Fifth Child. Um, this is a book about a mother who is faced with impossible choices and who in some ways has to forsake her children to do right by one of her children. Um, and it, it's an astonishingly slim book. Hmm. It, it just gets so much done in so few pages. It's, it's just a masterpiece of economy and it really just showed me how well one one path for telling the story that I wanted to tell that I knew I couldn't live up to but it it, it was nice to have an impossible standard to mm. to attempt 
Um, and another book that inspired mine um, is Are You My Mother by Alison Bechtel. Yeah. Um, my book spends a lot of time with um, Donald Winnicott's work and Are You My Mother is like just a, just a fantastic kind of treatise on, on Winnicott's work. I mean, I, I understood his work um, so much better just from reading Absolutely. Bechtel's book. Um, but obviously it's not just a cliff notes on, on Donald Winnicott. It's, it's a you know, beautifully illustrated and mordant and funny and sad um, exploration of, of all the ways that daughters can rebel against their mothers, but also kind of echo their mother's um, choices and paths at the same time. And um, I feel a great debt to that book as well. I love that. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you so much, Maris. This was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.